KOW. My name is Anna Ehrenstein and I'm sitting here with my homie Heiko in Berlin and on the occasion of the current group show at KOW called Out of the Dark, um, where I was showing some of my works, uh, we were having conversations because the group show opened at the same time of the Black Lives Matters protests when they reached their peak, uh, end of May. And at that time, we wrote an essay that took position to the echoes of the Black Lives Matters protest in the US, um, which Germany had really big protests at the same time, and how um, thinking about how we could expand the conversation we were having in the essay together um, on the current situation of um, racial politics, the arts, and German media. And myself, I work in installation and landscape practices, very often in uh, extended photography or textile works. Everything I do is pretty much precarious assemblage. And within this precarious assemblage, uh, I very often work in various forms of collaboration, um, precarious collaboration, and everything that I'm usually doing is with an intersectional lens and looking at the relationship between subject and object in the digital age. And um, yeah, Heiko, could you introduce your practice? Yes, hello. Uh, my name is Heiko Tandekanube. I'm an artist and a writer. Yeah, I used to study uh, philosophy and art history at the Free University and now currently I'm studying fine arts at the University of Arts in the Linz-based class and Yeah, I mean, I, I work with a lot of different media, mediums, but mostly video uh, and like experimental film. But I also do lecture performances and whatnot. And yeah, I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, a lot of the times I, I, I'm deeply interested in my own uh, heritage. Uh, my dad's from Zimbabwe, my mother's German. Uh, but also in particular, I'm very interested or at the time in uh, mythologies. Mythologies from you know Germanic tribes, but uh, also um, yeah, then Dibelis and Zulus in southern Africa, and you know how these how these stories have transcended, and may seem forgotten, but uh, still live in a certain way or form. So thanks a lot. I was thinking um, for kind of situating us first, and then situating the context. I'm going to steal a, a question I've heard um, a Berlin-based curator Chala Ilk say. Um, shout out, by the way, Chala Ilk and Misa Latnan Yildiz are just taking over the Kunsthalle Baden-Baden as mm. um, a fantastic duo. And Chala Ilk was one of the people that was very important for the term that is... Um, Uh, quite common in the German arts that's called post-migrational theater. And uh, in one of Chala's um, interviews, I heard her ask um, to situate oneself. It would be nice to speak about who you were a hundred years ago. So dear Heiko, could mm -hmm. you tell me where have you been a hundred years ago? Okay, well, so... Um... I think the end of the First World War will probably be, um, you know, 1990, no, 1918 uh, would, would be, I guess, the center point. 
so from my African side, uh, I would be in Rhodesia, or like what was called Rhodesia then, and it's called Zimbabwe now. And so the British South Africa company probably forced me to fight uh, against the Germans in the name of uh, England, the colonizers. And I'd probably yeah, be on my way back, or I'll really be back in Rhodesia. Uh, colonized Rhodesia, yes, and on my German side, yes, World War One, sure. Like I would be, <laughs> I'd be in a completely destroyed country uh, that uh, somehow isn't really done with the conflict that they were just involved in. That's kind of fun because um, I think at the same time um, where it's like the time of the national awakenings, both of my parents are from Albania, but. Um, my dad's side because at that time it was just like the Ottoman Empire was crippling and Albania was not yet Europe um, so um, my dad's family was living in Istanbul for three generations and at that side I would have been a trader in Istanbul and um, from my mom's side um, I would have been in Albania and um, Some of my mom's family was partisan fighters against the Italian fascists um, and in the time of the National Awakenings tried to construct um, a communist Albanian state, which they managed to do, but not that successfully. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think that's um, uh, a good introduction to think about um, how uh, these two histories, yours and mine, landed in Germany right now and how they are connected to bigger histories and circulations of migration within Germany and connections that are sometimes not part of this analysis because there is certain tropes um, and uh, these tropes very often frame migration as something that came to Germany in the 60s due mm. to the guest workers. Mm. And um, I think your history connects German migrational and German expansionism um, mm. to uh, a much further point, whereas my history is kind of connected to another empire, the Ottoman Empire, mm. um, that has been differently framed Italian fascism and then coming to Germany's after the uh, breakdown of the dictatorship with my parents and um, one of them going back to Albania, the other one staying and getting me that nice German surname. I think that would be a good point to introduce a bit of the um, kind of situatedness we're in Germany right now. Um, yes, I think you already mentioned something very interesting. Uh, that is that, uh, in a way, I would also agree that Germany uh, understands its history with uh, non-white nations or with non-Western nations as something that really began in the middle of the 20th century and kind of disseminated along various different conflicts like, you know, the Yugoslav wars, um, but also... Um, which is not a conflict, but like the Gastarbeiter generation and uh, certain waves of refugee crisis that have happened since, including the recent ones, and kind of like, you know, splits it up into small portions without seeing the, first of all, the longer, long-term historic connection that Germans were also very much a part of the transatlantic slave trade and also had, had their own slaves on German ground and, um, oh, enslaved people, to be precise. 
and that there's always been a longer history with uh, you know Germany and uh, the rest of the colonized world. Um, so I mean, this is something I think that is very really fundamental to understand Germany's relation to race. Even just the term race is very it's denied in its existence in Germany. Which is kind of really funny because sometimes I used to have fights with, and I get the stance um, that some people from the German left said because this was a term coined by the Nazis, they never want to use this term for any human mm -hmm. being anymore again. Mm -hmm. But of course, this colorblindness narrative um, is not only problematic for the uh, Afro-German populations, but also for other people of color populations in Germany. And I think there to situate the conversations about how our practice and how the art world um, looks right now in um, Berlin in context of the last, what has been going on in the last two months, the last year. Um, uh, no, I also just wanted to, wanted to cut <laughs> in and say, uh, they, actually race, uh, it, it has been a term in Germany for even a longer time than the Nazis. I mean, the strongest connotation of it, uh, I guess, yeah. is the Nazis, but like, Uh, here, what what many people don't really know, or like the wider public, is that Immanuel Kant, I guess one of the biggest uh, figures, intellectual figures of Germany, uh, yeah, was a very active uh, racist. <laughs> so he had he spent a lot of time writing about various um, racial theories uh, and constructing a hierarchy of uh, you know which nation or which people are lesser or more, and. Um, Also, interestingly enough, for Kant, who never, I mean, he never really left his home city, isn't it? I think he only went to the city next door. Yeah. So, yeah, we never really left Germany. For him, it was apparently the natives of uh, the Americas that were the most primitive. I and think that's was, really uh, interesting because it kind of collides with the things that we're speaking about, like how our families are situated. Yeah. Um, that, of course... Um, Before race, there was a people and there was families and clans. And mm. um, um, of course, in the time of nation building and building a German nation out of a German people and the building of identities that we're having to fight right now, um, what became crucial for Germany was, for example, the blood right that other nations don't have. And I think some of the criticism that people are speaking with the Black Lives Matter movement and how a kind of like imperial lens is trying to be like reflected within German discourse is that, of course, one of the biggest things is that Germany has a blood right and an integration narrative. Mm. And for example, the US is looking very differently uh, within yeah. these contexts. And this blood right is actually part of trying to build a German nation where there was nothing like that and there was German-speaking speak people in France. And yeah. so... Yeah, I often wonder, you know, since Germany was, I think, the last nation to be formed within uh, at least Western Europe, um, you know, there is, there is some theories about uh, whether... I mean, in its essence, uh, the project of the Nazis uh, was more or less... Uh, you know, there are lots of parallels to the colonial project, but they just uh, didn't colonize the world at large at that given time in which it happened for the other nations, but they kind of projected this project onto Europe and Western Europe itself. Like the Germans kind of stepped in late into the game of colonial... Or let's, let's put it like this, you know, essentially like for whiteness to be constructed, you know, uh, you know as, as, as you know, it needed to be a kind of... Uh, it needed a counterpart, uh, which were then, you know, the other yeah. so-called races of the earth. 
And within this process, the Western nations actually formulated themselves. And Germany was extremely late uh, by this and in a way overcompensated, I, 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 I somehow think, sometimes. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that's something where the character gap turns into the social media gap, where the international discourse, of course, American influence in Germany is really big, but Europe functions very differently than the US does. So the dots are not connected, but at the same time, while all these European countries have their specificities, there is, of course, also where is the construct of race coming from? It is Europe and it's, it gets so frustrating in the German context to try to speak about things when the feuilleton for six weeks discusses if we need Black Lives Matters, like what the hell? Um, it really leads to the question of how race is constructed at the moment. And I think at that time, um, it would be interesting to go into these constructions in, a, in an echo through what is happening in the US, but also what is happening within the current others in Germany mm. and how these discussions are part of the arts, part of our own projects. And I kind of have like, two, three questions um, or moments I would like to um, just like mention and ask um, you how you've experienced them. And um, let's start with one of the things that I think is very specific to the German and Berlin context, and it's the character gap. Mm. The character gap. So the character gap is a term that comes from psychology philosophy and when I heard it the first time I directly had to think of the Berlin art scene because the character gap describes um, the gap between how we speak and think and perceive our character to be and then the gap to how we actually think and act and I guess that's um, part of inherent of many um, um, politicized uh, areas like academia or NGOs or whatever, but it's very obvious in an art scene in Berlin where there's an amazing level of discourse and Berlin is famous globally for its criticality. But then at the same time, it is situated in a country that is actually quite segregated. And um, the segregation is very usually, it's like being pinpointed and externalized, looked at like, oh, the US is so segregated, or France mm -hmm. or Belgium are so segregated. But um, yeah, segregation functions and works differently in Germany. And also, what, what, what many people don't really understand, I mean, if you're in Berlin, right, uh, the, um, let's say, rather poorer neighborhoods, uh, Neukölln and Kreuzberg, I mean, we have to look at what it was like before gentrification. But yeah, if we look at Neukölln, you have to know where the, where the wool where the wool wins, and then you can see, okay, who are the people, what kind of ethnicities are living closest to the where the wool once wins. And then you see it was mostly like Arabic people that came as um, yeah, refugees, essentially. Or guest workers from the 60s. Yeah. Um, I think the city politics and intersection yeah. of Germany is really massive and yeah. in other cities it's more public in yeah. cologne for example there's like the germans there's the rhine and then there's like the canucks yeah. and uh, I mean, in yeah, berlin I mean, it's it's a bit different it yeah. looks more mixed but for the people growing up yeah. in this neighborhood that we're sitting in right now 
it is there is no free will in yeah, how also, you navigate. Even if you take a closer look to how it is in a way layered, yeah. you, you know, you've got the Zonali and that's where mostly Arabic refugees live, and then you've got Karl Marx Straße, which is closer to the farther away from the wall, and then you have mostly Zakash people living, and then so it got like the the various degrees and of uh, marginalization throughout the history of Berlin, you can really see it on the, like, and geographically. the street that had the Arab refugees does not have a metro station, yes. but a G the street with the Turkish guest workers has a metro station. So there's loads of like these intentional structures of where support has been giving and where support has not been giving are very much seen in the architecture and yes, the um, housing market, housing market, job market and yeah. so on and so on. But I think what is interesting for if you don't know Germany's statistics so well and you can't have statistics around race is that 25% of Germany have a migration background. But from these 25%, actually 65% have an, another EU country migration background which, of course, xenophobia is part of every culture. And, of course, there is no culture free of xenophobia. So also, if you migrate from Austria to Germany or from Spain to Germany, you will get a few weird comments. But the process of racialization and constructing someone as the racial other, so also looking at whiteness not as a skin color and that race not as a skin color, but as a construct of otherizing yeah, and dehumanizing. Historical ideology. Yeah. And then I, maybe I'd just like to drop into, if you briefly, just to formulate Germany's um, strategy with race, is, uh, you know, there is no racism in Germany because there is no race. <laughs> there are no races, <laughs> they do not exist. Therefore, there are no statistics on them. Therefore, there is no apparent uh, um, form in which you can actually clearly see uh, structural discrimination. And the funny thing is, though, that within the last years, so there was always this term, which is, if you translate it from German to English, quite cute. It's Südländer in German, mm. and it means um, countryman from the south. Yeah. But this term, Südländer, is not used for Spanish or Italian people, even though maybe in the 60s, southern Italians were still guest workers. But it's usually used for people that look Muslim, whatever yes. looking Muslim is. Yeah. And then there's this other term that we have since five years in Germany, since the sex attacks, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is the Nafri. Um, mm -hmm. So there are racial categories which, with which it is difficult to get into the housing market and with which um, the police is actually searching for perpetrators. So they are saying, we are searching for a Südländer. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, there is quite a lot of discussions, but these discussions, I think, somehow happen within the arts and academia, but the structures of academia and the arts are quite different to how it's like to be talked about. And I think uh, yeah. when I was thinking about this conversation, I was thinking I would love to know more about... Um, What's been going on with you because you are in Hito Styles lens-based class and as part of um, the problems that the University of Fine Arts, which is a like globally known university for a very critical stance in the arts, um, actually seems to have quite big disparities between what's been talked about at the bottom and how it's like up there. So. Mm, yes, certainly. <laughs> also, the University of Arts Berlin has a character gap, right? Yeah, character, character gap. gap okay. Well, so on the one side, it has a within the world in Germany as well, 
it has this very progressive international image. Uh, but at the same time, if you take a closer look, also especially if you start studying there, most of the staff, the vast majority of the staff, of the professors and also those in the administrative areas and even up to the president, vice president, whatnot and so on, are white. But really, um, oof, yeah, like to, to, to a very disturbing proportion. I mean, at this point, I can say I only know two people who work for the university, at least in the Faculty of Fine Arts where I am. I have only ever seen or heard of two people that are not white that work there. Uh, I won't drop their names, but <clears throat> essentially there is a problem there. And also uh, in terms of a certain... I mean, we have one professor who is really wildly Islamophobic and it's like an open secret, everybody knows it. And she always attacks, in particular, women with um, hijabs uh, when they're having some exam, you know, like the final exams, or when they're like in the entry interview, begins discussing with them, arguing that why do you wear a hijab? Uh, Islam is very a middle aged religion, and really, like, <laughs> it's so funny. So sorry like, to interrupt you right now, but I think this conversation is really crucial in um, the like radicality sometimes of German leftism. Of course, that's not always the case, but. Very often, certain generations of very dogmatic leftist people tend to forget that they are not there to save other people, but they can listen to various forms of feminism. Yeah. And because of, I mean, like saying something publicly against Jewish people or black people, I think yeah. would be something that you don't really do. But Islamophobia is actually something yeah, that is being dropped and tolerated in yeah. the German left and um, in feminist circles. And it's funny because even, I think, I don't know when they founded themselves, but a few years ago, um, the Antifa, that now is a terrorist mm -hmm. organization due to Mr. Trump in the US, in Germany founded a migrantifa mm. <laughs> because um, these tropes around um, how bad in hijab is, how women have to be saved by the sex offender men that are coming from the Middle East um, are so important for certain leftist yes. movements um, that it was kind of surprising to hear about this professor at the Udeka, mm. but then also it was not that surprising and yeah. that she's still teaching is yeah, like yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. also how to deal with racism instead of removing a racist professor yeah. people just tell her please don't insult the women in the hijab yeah <laughs> yeah yeah they tell her just yeah no this is not the right moment or you know yeah. kind of in these tones it was even funny i mean maybe just to um cut it together short this protest essentially um so instead, yeah, once a year, every German art university has uh, the Rundgang, which is a process in which the entire university gets uh, transformed into an exhibition. And then for somewhat three days or so, people can come and see what the students are doing and whatnot. And this year, due to Corona, there was a screen that was put outside in front of the university. And that's where we got to display our funky stuff. And then there was one student in particular who decided to focus on racism. Then they made three banners, uh, I think Black Lives, uh, no, Black Trans Lives Matter, um, uh, Evacuiert alle Lager, Rassismus tötet, and uh, the third one, No Justice, No Peace. And then they hung them in front of the, fac the, the facade of the university. They were removed overnight. Uh, they couldn't find out where they were. Then they wrote the president an email. The president answered, 
yeah, he really answered in a kind of sloppy way and he didn't know where they were. He didn't really respond to them demanding him, like asking him to clear up the situation. He just ignored that point. And then he proceeded to finish the email by saying that he suspects that these banners were removed. Uh, now, quote unquote, im Sinne der Gebäudereinhaltung, meaning um, in the sense of, uh, due to... The cleansing of the facade. Yes, and I think the um, important thing is that cleansing in German, where does yes. it come from? It's a Nazi term, like yeah, ethnic it was cleansing. Like heavily, yeah, <laughs> it has a strong connotation, this word Reinhaltung, because you know, Adolf Hitler used to argue. Uh, that he's committing all these, like, yeah, in favor of all these genocides because uh, they are they contribute to the Reinhaltung des Volkskörpers. So you need so to be purified, basically. Exactly, and he dropped that word inside a discussion that it was about work against uh, anti-discrimination work, which was actually a horrible choice of words. Uh, yeah, and he, did, I mean, he didn't respond or anything, didn't say anything about a follow-up, and then all of a sudden a real big protest erupted. The students started mobilizing, and then I mean, it went from week to week. It just got bigger and then in the end I mean from I think 18 classes 15 of them uh, did work somewhat relating to racism or criticizing the UDK mostly or uh, trying to start a discussion about what's happening in Germany and uh, you know on this on this screen that we had outside but at the same time we also collected some experiences uh, and then uh, you know that people had made at the UDK when they got uh, oppressed in one or the other way over the course of three days we got over 50 and then we just put them all over the facade and then we had these bang and banners hanging out of the windows with questions posed towards the university that they should ask themselves in order to change and whatnot and it was like a very complicated long process that really wasn't that easy to finish i mean a month later the, pro the president actually when all these protests were already up and running and it was really clear that this would be a problem for him then he wanted to have a discussion with us and then he suggested I mean, he wrote his apology for using that word, I must state that, but it's more kind of like an apology for us misunderstanding him because he didn't mean it that way. <laughs> but I think yeah. it's also interesting because I think we were having a few conversations, I didn't follow up the whole protest that happened within mm. the academy, that the students um, incited a protest because the critical race theory that has been talked about is not part about how the academy is structured, that there is a massive lack of professors of color in the yeah. academy yeah. and just a few professors of color have to fight for maintaining the other in the academy Absolutely. and then the academy yeah. itself, the institution, kind of co-opted your protest and yeah. acted as if it was their own protest. <laughs> yes. And I think that's yes. a really interesting it, yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean the strategy that the car kind of has, you know, which is what Anna also just mentioned, uh, a token system, so all the non-white people working for the UDK or as professors are always guest professors that always have to leave after two years or so. It doesn't matter how like um, how much the students like them or how well their, their, their classes are visited, they just have to leave at some point, they don't get their contracts extended. And um, the other thing is, yeah, like scrambling together, like whatever was done in, in favor of, of anti-discrimination work. I mean, in our case, a lot of what the president dropped in the university were that the Jazz Institute wrote a statement, uh, you know, about in solidarity with Afro-Americans uh, and in response to George Floyd's um, murder. But uh, it, it's very outward you know, tokenism, and I think totally. that's also it was really they had to they had to I, I, I know a few people that were there when they were arguing whether or not to make the statement, and it was very like it was 
a few students that were really getting into a deep argument with the professors and about this, and they, they had to force it. You know, any kind of change that's there, they have, they have to force it. Also, the new, we're getting one new professor who's um, yeah, a, a black professor. Also, the process of getting him to the university was really like painful. I mean, it was a really, it was rough. There was a lot of students in favor of him, and they had to go through countless discussions. Nobody like from those who. Kind of, positions yeah, of positions of power. And actually, to go back to this, um, there's one remarkable thing about, or like one thing one must know about German universities in general, is that German professors cannot really be fired. And this is yeah. because of the first, uh, the Second World War, because so many professors were fired at that time. Sounds good from that perspective, uh, as a, you know, a, um, measurements to prevent what had happened before. But this kind of leads to. Those professors that have been longest in each institution and each uh, university and so on, they kind of build cliques, they kind of form uh, groups, and they kind of, you know... That's what I also wanted to favor. say, because I think what is happening at the UDK and how difficult it is for professors of colors mm. to be in an academy in Germany is actually something that is happening. I mean, the UDK is just so crazy because it's known as the most critical, most famous academy, but yeah. every academy in Germany more or less looks yeah. this way. Yeah. There was a protest at the Weissensee yeah. Academy last year, which was called um, Weissensee mm. is immer noch zu weiß, mm. translated to um, White Lake is the name of the university. White Lake uh, is still too white. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I was studying at the Academy of uh, uh, Media Arts in Cologne and um, as an echo of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and I think also conversations they had before there is now a professorship for black aesthetics, which I think is very much needed. Yeah. But at the same time, there is also, there is not a Middle Eastern aesthetics professorship, for example. So it's the question like, how are we going to use this token? Are we going to change the structure mm -hmm. of the academy? And um, how difficult it is for people of color to... Um, navigate this very wide institution and uh, in the process of uh, talking about the racial politics within German institutions but also the broader uh, lack of discourse you made this video work uh, and I think you also collaborated mm. maybe you could expand on what you did oh yes yes absolutely uh, one member of my class uh, Bruno Siegerist he made a very nice song with a pocket trumpet uh, it, it was really it was kind of funny but really melancholic you know he would he just went during these corona times you know we were having these digital uh, zoom meetings and so on and then he just played a song with, with his pocket trumpet and it was i think the chorus was very simple it was what a wonderful world or that was essentially it. in the beginning it was funny then it became really deep and really sad and kind of ironic I don't know. Well, we kind of teamed up together because I, uh, you know, the text I was working on together with you that we wrote, uh, I, I carried on writing on it, and then uh, we decided maybe I can pack it into uh, a video based on his uh, song. So the video is called uh, Rest in Pieces. And I think the core argument I'm trying to make with all of this is that we really need to take a look about how empathy uh, functions within Europe uh, and yeah, within, within, within racial injustice within Germany and how the Germans kind of empathize with what happens here compared to how they empathize with what happens in the States. Now, um, 
I kind of get post-traumatic stress disorder when you say this because looking at the situation right now, it reminds me of how the hippies in the 70s um, demonstrated against the Vietnam War mm. while their guest workers in Germany were treated like modern-day slavery. Yeah. And now the Black Lives Matter protest is kind of... Uh, very very big but uh yeah the people that are being killed in hanau that are also part of your video work are yes. kind of forgotten in the process yeah absolutely and also i mean what really i was discussing this with the friends of mine uh, jessica Mufua, that they celebrated carnival i mean you know carnival is a six day long celebration mostly celebrated in southwest germany and uh, yeah the southwest germans love their carnival really uh, they just absolutely adore it and it goes for six days and the day before it began there was this attack in hanau which is also located in the southwest of germany and regardless uh, of the fact that 10 people were murdered they still they still decided to also the city of hanau decided to you know begin the festivities i mean not even i think it was roughly eight hours later or something like this and also carnival, if you really think of it, I mean, these costumes and it's also a very, I don't know, since Germany doesn't really identify with having an, with, with any, anything in regards to race, uh, these festivals like carnival, I mean, black, blackface is really not a crime in Germany. <laughs> like it's really, it's, really it's very, not, very common and it's yeah. in many kindergartens and schools yeah. and so on yeah. and so on. Um, you know, not as bad as it's Warte Piet, but you know, almost. Much. And, like, <laughs> imagine. and then so then carnival they started the carnival they had like moments of silence with these silly costumes i mean i really don't want to know how many of these costumes were uh oriental so <laughs> oriental and then taking a moment of silence for you know these people that were just murdered and slaughtered a day earlier it's, it's really disturbing and so then, also the video work kind of dealt with this but yeah. also at the same time used these trumpets then as a form to, within the sound, also create a space and a room for how this dealing with the racial issues is being, like, humor is mm. used as a way to not really use the structure mm. and these, like, obscuring tactics everywhere. Ah, absolutely. Now, also, I mean, just the, 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 the song itself fuses between, bounces between melancholia and also, um, um, yeah, it's also kind of irony. And now what did I say? Yeah, inside the video, uh, interestingly enough, I managed to find a footage of a really good footage of a, one of the moments of silence that was taken. And it's the video is three minutes long, and I packed a whole moment of silence into it, which is seventeen seconds, <laughs> seventeen seconds of silence for a slaughtering that happened just eight hours, eight hours before, yeah. with cost, cons, like uh, costumes. Ah, it's, it's just really, really, really fucked up. And then, yeah, I mean, okay, one last thing that does come to my mind that I do also note, because this was something that really concerned me last year, or like really hit me, uh, that there was also a case uh, here in Germany, a similar case to George Floyd, I would argue, where, um, yeah, I think, I can't remember which country, but Sub-Saharan African was, he went to a hospital in Hamburg, the university clinic in Hamburg, and then uh, he wanted to, because he had schizophrenia, he wanted to get himself checked, and then they decided that he should stay there, and if you want to force somebody who's somewhat uh, mentally going through something to stay somewhere, you need a judge to, like, uh, kind of authorize uh, this forcible uh, um, act of keeping the person there against their will. But he was considering whether he stays or not, uh, smoking a cigarette on the bench. And then three people came who worked as securities, 
uh, of the hospital. And no, first, some, one person came and offered them, told them to take a pill. He didn't want to take it. And three people, well, the security people came. And then they, uh, yeah, in the act of trying to force him to have this, get this pill and stay inside the hospital, they, they killed him. And this was, I mean, nobody ever talked about it at all. And it was very, like, uh, I don't know, the way that they killed him must have had some kind of similar traits to what happened to George Floyd. I mean, they're just three men trying to force one man to just... Okay, enough enough about this one. His name is Tonu Mbobda. And, and um, uh, okay. mentioning... Yes, uh, well, uh, now we were speaking about collaborations. I don't collaborate as much as... Anna Ehrenstein, who's here right to my left side, she is, uh, yeah, you know, one of your main uh, methods of working is collaborating. I also know it has very deep roots. <laughs> I think it really comes from, because I studied photography in the beginning, um, me teaching photography to people in um, so-called um, problematic, uh, socially problematic districts where the people look like myself and mm. I was quite young. And at that time, I realized that actually it does not make sense for me to teach these people something, but mm. we should rather work on projects together. And uh, yeah, it is part of, um, of course, all the um, social political issues that we're speaking about are also part of most of the collaborations because it's very often south, mm. south, south, precarious collaborations like the work that is currently um, installed at KOV Gallery, mm. which was a collaboration with the Colombian Voguing Collective um, House of Tupamaras. And mm. I had research in uh, Bogota, Colombia, that was looking at um, tropes around the um, construction of what we constitute as knowledge and how these tropes um, are in the time where we externalize most of our decision-making processes to algorithms, mm. actually really endangering marginal communities because mm. of the um, databases we are uh, using for the algorithms. And, um, and the way we're training them as well. No? The way we're yeah. training them. And um, the Vogue Collective and I decided to... Uh, translate the concepts we're speaking about in a, like... Um, 360 video work mm. in um, written and spoken way but also through embodied knowledge and the big question was like what happens if we don't make academia twerk and how can we give the techno phallus so mm. it was all set in a plane um, which kind of links to mm. <laughs> also where the planes in times of COVID are going um, mm. to looking how like everything that we constitute as knowledge very often is linked to um, a fascist and uh, nuclear family idea of how knowledge is linked to male generative um, possibilities of having the technophallus mm. and then embodying these <laughs> things into giving them a global south queer mm. feminist kink. Uh, so the babes and me coined the term post-human pereo and um, that was... Uh, uh, a fun but of course also a situation where collaboration now is escalating in times mm. of corona so we did a performance work two weeks ago at KOV where we collected also donations for sex mm. workers collectives um, in Bogota and the people that were active in the queer scene because um, a part of all of these near future dangers that we're having we also have the very current future dangers and um, mm. I think at that time I also want to shout out of course the work that we're both doing is situated 
not only within hypocrisy, but also within loads of people that have been doing collective and collaborative work um, yes. for decades. One of them is EOTO. Mm, absolutely, yeah. yeah. They are also they're collecting their own database on uh, yeah on race essentially in in Germany. That what we were talking about earlier on, what the German state refuses to do, but they're collecting their own statistics. So that's some great work they're doing. And. Uh, Then there's also Soup du Jour, the intersectional feminist oh, yeah. collective mm -hmm. that um, got quite a bit of press within the last two years. Yes. Uh, they started with um, an action, an activist action of art workers that criticized the lack of any kind of diversity in a gallery weekend in Berlin, where many galleries just showed positions of um, the one most attacked group, white straight men at the time, in, um, <laughs> let's say, uh, discourse, but not in who actually holds power still is quite um, obvious. Yeah. And um, what I find interesting is that in the beginning, uh, we were talking about the character gap. Oh, There's yes. this um, phenomenon of critical attention whoring, which is also <laughs> quite big. And when Soup du Jour um, was... Uh, doing an action against um, an exhibition in Berlin that used Afrofuturist terminologies and Afrofuturist title without showing a singular yeah. Afro-whatever yeah, artist so as a buzzword, as a <laughs> as a buzzword, buzzword. or as something yeah. to be inspired at the same time while also mentioning fantasies of Tesla and going to the moon. Let's not get yeah, into this. Yeah. But what was interesting, <laughs> because it's been debated quite a lot, was that as a... Um, answer to this action of this queer feminist collective um, they um, made a podium discussion and within this podium discussions certain individuals went to speak on the stage of how Berlin does not need the guerrilla girls anymore mm. and that we're not in the 80s and funnily it was three men yeah. discussing if we need feminism yeah. and these, this is a very obfuscating technique because people are using their criticality to be seen where in the end no one actively works against the structure and the director of the house is also still the director of the house even though this has been heavily debated yeah. and um, I think these tactics of uh, critical attention whoring are something that are seen in the arts but of course they reflect also tactics of obfuscating racial problems within German politics yeah. that are kind of still linked to the arts, which is beautiful. So I think, <laughs> do you still remember um, the debate around, um, I think two years ago, our interior minister that we already mentioned because mm. he's part of our ruling party, the mm. Christian Democratic Union, mm. um, said that we need a new interior ministry and he mm. used a term that is called home ministry and this term home in German yeah. is Heimat. Heimat, yes. It's also again one of these terms uh, that have a very strong Nazi connotation. I mean, within the vocabulary the Nazis used, um, yeah, they loaded them with meaning. I mean, Germany, there's, there's, you know, there's different ways of saying home. Oh. You can also say Zuhause or you can say... Um, There's, there's several ways, and then there's certain terminologies that you know we, we, we need to be careful with. We really need to be careful with. That's them. interesting and that you're saying this because I'm not sure if my statistics are right right now, but I think the day he introduced this terminology, yeah. the Heimatministerium, the 
from everyone seem to be far right party, the AfD, yeah. uh, Alternative for Deutschland, Alternative for Germany, got 13% more voters just because the mainstream used this word. Yeah. And so that's, this has actual consequences. Yeah. But then there was one um, uh, journalist, writer, academic, uh, Hangabe Jagobifara, who made a book that was called Eure Heimat ist unser Albtraum. Mm. If you translate it, it's your home ministry yeah. is our nightmare. And funnily, when the discussions about racism came up again this year and the discussions about defund the police in the US were reflected on shall we do racial profiling tests with the police in Germany or yeah. collect data because yeah. there's not even data taking uh, in Germany who of the police actually is in far-right parties. <laughs> um, she wrote an article on a German leftist newspaper. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, it was kind and, of... Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, it's it's really strange to me that we are way beyond the point of even, like, I mean, look at how the NSU uh, kind of unfolded, you know, the... Uh, the, the uh, NSU, Nationalsozialistische yeah. <laughs> Untergrund, okay. Yeah, this terror organization that killed, I mean, how many people, 15, 20 or so, over like a yeah wide span of time, never got caught. And it is proven that this organization actually had ties to the police. They had a lot of inside men uh, and women that were actually like, yeah, defending the court, like, you know, covering up what they were doing. And I think that is already, I mean, enough of, uh, you know, a proof, a proof really yeah. to show that there, there is an issue within uh, the German police. And that because of this history, Hengame wrote this article where she was saying, what shall we do with the police? Yes. And it was a satirical article. And she wrote that, um, yeah. well, if we didn't know where to put the Nazis after we changed the system in Second World War and they're somehow still within us, yeah. what do we do with the police? Ah, <laughs> let's just put them to the garbage. <laughs> and that was obviously a very cynical article yeah. but she was being called out the police yeah. wanted to uh, sue her um, so the police wanted to sue her and then our interior minister also wrote uh, and gave interviews in german newspapers that he also thinks he wants to sue hengame which is very interesting in the context of him and hengame having had a personal fight yeah. a year or two years ago because of this book that attacked his ministry, yeah. now he's using this single young woman of color yeah. in Germany to um, obfuscate the debate on whether our police needs reforms to, and then talking about this bad German leftist that is interfering with human rights and so on and yeah. so on. Yeah, I mean, it's just disgusting, really. So there's obviously an eminent threat in the current political but also art landscape of people tone policing, of people obfuscating the problem. May it be at Kunstraum Britannien where certain individuals think that talking against feminism is more important than calling out the lack of diversity in um, the Berlin art scene. Or may it be with our interior minister who thinks um, calling out a journalist is... Um, more important than looking at the heavily problem that um, the German police is having and um, the danger that is being posed to migrant communities and 
I mean, this neighborhood has been on fire for the last two months. Two days ago, um, within the neighborhood that we're sitting right now, I don't know for how many years, but there's about 70 um, attacks uh, from far right yeah. known on um, migrational businesses, migrational houses. Yeah. Um, three weeks ago, a Syrian bakery got attacked. Uh, a few weeks ago, the most famous Lebanese restaurant burned down completely. Yeah. And two days ago, uh, it came out that actually the court um, has some sympathies to the far-right party. Mm. Um, so the big hope of racial politics that we were having that they might echo because of the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. have been put apart. Two days ago, they came up again. And yeah, let's see. It's somehow a bit difficult to not get bitter because on the one hand, uh, the Germans really took the whole guilt for the Holocaust, which was a collective European project and not just a German project. But at the same time, like within every other nation, there are xenophobic and racist structures that threaten the lives of people around us. And um, yeah, we hope we don't have to um, record uh, another um, version of the racial telenovela. <laughs> um, of yeah. racial politics, media and the arts Thanks for uh, having this conversation yes. with me. Thank you, Anna. It was a pleasure, my dear. <laughs> and uh, thank you guys for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye.